Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Casual. Um, anyway, we're, we're on recording now, Professor McPherson. Uh, welcome. Thank you very much. It's an honor to have you here. Um, before we get into, uh, you know, whatever we want to talk about, now you've got some very interesting perspectives and very controversial views, you know, uh, that I think are, are interesting to talk about. Give us a little rundown on your background. I, I was reading about your background. You've got some really interesting stuff, you know, and uh, uh, you living out. In, I lived in New Mexico for a while, so I saw you lived out there for a while, and down in, I guess it was Belize, and some of that. Now you're up in New York. But tell us a little bit about your background, who you are, and then we can get into the topic du jour. Uh, or maybe the most important topic of all, perhaps. Right. So I completed my undergraduate degree in forestry at the University of Idaho approximately 2,700 years ago. I don't remember the exact date. And received both of my graduate degrees, my master's and PhD from Texas Tech University. Then then did a postdoctoral research stint at the University of Georgia. We lost your connection. I'm giving you the Red Raider thing. I went. I went to medical school at Texas Tech. Oh, <laughs> it's been so long. Were you in so, Lubbock? Were you in Lubbock in the Lubbock oh, yeah. campus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. I was on campus in Lubbock. I did my field research yeah. near Justiceburg, which is Not, just. I can't remember. Just I think down that name the hill. Yeah, that name. That name you just go over the Yano Estacado, and there's the little village of Justiceburg, and Texas Tech had a research ranch there. There's a, there's a lot of cotton out there. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm reading this book called Emperor of the Sun. Uh, uh, Joe Rogan told me to read it and it's, it talks all about that area with the Comanches and this is where their headquarters were. And so I just right. reading, hearing those names again, it's kind of cool. Cause I was like, I used to live there. I know that. Right. Right. Blanco Canyon. I think it was Blanco Canyon where one of the guys lived. I think I got, I, got, I believe I got married there. If I'm not mistaken. So, <laughs> so it's like this headquarters of this vicious guy that was slaughtering people and cutting off their extremities and genitalia and sticking it in their mouth. And anyway, yeah. anyway, that's a different topic. But anyway, go ahead. What proceed. better place for that than West Texas? Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I did my postdoctoral research at the University of Georgia. I actually conducted the research on Cumberland Island, which is Georgia's southernmost barrier island. And then did a one-year teaching stint at Texas A&M University before starting my tenure-track position at the age of 29 at the University of Arizona. I was on campus for 20 years to the day. I left there on May 1st, 2009. So due to the enormous privilege I've enjoyed as largely as a result of being a heterosexual white man, I have been able to survive these 10 and a half years since then without a paycheck. And and now I continue my educational efforts, mostly through interviews such as this and some writing at my blog, guymcpherson.com, and occasionally participating in a workshop. So most recently, like within the last dozen years or so, 
uh, have reached the conclusion that climate change is proceeding so quickly that we are going to go extinct. Yes, Homo sapiens, our species, is going to go extinct. And I initially had that idea long before I announced it because I'm not stupid enough to announce that thing, sort of thing in public without some evidence. Once the evidence began to accumulate, I began promulgating that evidence and pointing out that we as vertebrate mammals, given that vertebrates and mammals can't keep up with the ongoing rate of environmental change, and we are vertebrate mammals, it looks like we're in real trouble. And as a consequence, the, the timeline has grown shorter. I used to adhere to the, the conventional, we're fine until 2100 idea, and then the evidence started pouring in. And of course, with every day, the situation appears to be worse than it was the day before. So that's, that's what I've been hmm, plagiarized, libeled, and slandered about and frequently betrayed for the last dozen years or so is the notion that our species too will go extinct. Well, I mean, that's obviously a, a you know, happy thought. Um, <laughs> we, you know, and, and I don't, you know, like I said, you know, every human that's ever walked the planet has gone extinct. You know, you know, we can go back to whatever Homo erectus, which was our most successful, successful uh, species, 1.8 million years on the planet or so. We've been around as Homo sapiens with 300,000. Again, I don't know. So you're, so you, when you, when you say you did your, your U of A, you were doing that, field was what, what you were forestry but then when you went into was a climatology that you no that you... actually i am not a climate scientist okay i want to be clear about this i'm a conservation biologist conservation biologist so okay. i approach climate change and i've been studying climate change since i was in graduate school in the early 1980s so i approach climate change from the perspective of a biologist the three pillars of conservation biology are speciation which is how and with what predecessors a species comes into existence. Extinction, when does the last individual of a species or the taxonomic unit die? And habitat. Habitat is the, is the collective of the conditions we need to survive. Things like food, water, the ability to keep ourselves at an appropriate body temperature and so on. So, so let's oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish up. So you know, people tend to think of us as being separate from the other animals, but there's abundant evidence that vertebrates can't keep up with the projected very slow rates of change, the IPCC-style gradual climate change, much less more rapid rates of change, and there's abundant evidence indicating that mammals can't keep up as well. well. We're vertebrate mammals, we're in the midst of a mass extinction event on Earth. Previous mass extinction events didn't have anything larger than a shrew surviving. So I know we're special, we have the big brains, we, we really are special, and I'm not, I'm not kidding here. You know, compared to other species that have come before us on this planet, we have proportionally large brains. We have the ability to harness energy like no other species in the history of the planet has ever done, and so on. So we do some pretty amazing things. Does that mean we'll survive without habitat? I can't imagine that to be the case. Let me ask you, so what is a human habitat? Because we have, we've had people that have lived in the tropics. We've had people that lived in the polar regions. We seem to have a fairly significant range of temperature and geographic extremes that humans seem to be able to maybe not thrive but certainly live in and so 
you know, we're saying that, uh, you know, I mean, if we look at IPCC data, you know, if, if we go and we increase our worldwide temperature by 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.5 degrees, it's kind of raised the temperature. You know, clearly Earth has been hotter than that before, uh, you know, uh, there have been interglacial warm periods, you know, during human evolution over the last three million years. What is unique about this time right now? What is causing that? And what makes you think we're all going to be dead? And, and I think I heard you say 2026 is a cutoff date. What is, well, explain that more. Yeah. You know, what is our human habitat, first of all? Yeah. So as with every other species, we depend upon the ability to get water and food. And most notably, that water has to be relatively clean. This is something that existed when, when I was a kid. And I, it, it appears from the look of you that you're 10 or 15 years younger than me. But when I was a kid, and I know everybody, who lo everybody loves a story who's, that starts out like that. So when I was a kid, I used to go on these epic weekend drives with my parents. My parents and their three kids would just drive around the countryside burning fossil fuels like there's no tomorrow, not even thinking about that sort of thing. This is in the early 1960s, mid-1960s. And we would just stop periodically at a spring and grab a rusty tin can that was there at the spring and we'd drink water out of it. I wouldn't do that almost anywhere in North America anymore because the water is unsafe to drink. It's almost all of it has Giardia in it from livestock, from indigenous organisms, especially large mammals. It's not very safe to drink the water very many places on earth anymore. And then there's the difficulty of gaining access to food you, you are correct that we've lived throughout a wide range of conditions, including McMurdo Station in Antarctica, which is not really a very good example because we have to import everything in, right? Nobody, nobody's growing a lot of food in Antarctica. But we, humans have persisted in the Arctic where it's very cold, obviously also in the warm regions, the tropical regions of the planet, which is apparently where we came into existence as a species. Okay, so what's the big deal? The big deal here is the rate of change. The rate of environmental change is a subject that almost nobody will talk about, and probably because very few people have been versed in the importance of the rate of change. So right now, based on the incredibly conservative peer-reviewed journal literature, the rate of change in the environment on earth is proceeding more rapidly than vertebrates or mammals can keep up. Well, we're, vertebra we're vertebrate mammals. In addition, there's this idea of co-extinctions. A couple of biologists by the name of Strona and Bradshaw published a paper in November 2018 in Scientific Reports that focused on co-extinctions and specifically, the inability of complex organisms such as Homo sapiens to persist when much smaller organisms go away, because we depend upon those organisms in ways that most of us don't understand. But you start messing with little parts of the system, and you, as a medical bio, as a medical doctor, surely know that you only have to change the gut flora by a little tiny bit before you're not a very happy person anymore. It's the small things that really dictate our health. 
It's the, it's the things that are filtering the water to make it clean for us. It's the things that are pollinating the plants so that, we, so that they produce fruit, so that we have something to eat. And so those little things which seem on the surface to be relatively unimportant are the most important things to us. Professor McPherson, I have a quick question kind of around some of that because I was thinking about some of this stuff too and like one big glaring potential problem I see with with some of this stuff is that just the way we live life now versus even what we would have done like 100 years ago or 200 years ago and we're just not really equipped to maybe be able to have the skill sets to survive a climate that isn't very protected. So, you know, for me, when I think about this stuff, I sometimes think like, well, if we would have just hypothetically like a, like infrastructure would break down and all of a sudden we were kind of cast back out onto the land or living within the environment in a way, maybe we would have done hundreds of years ago. We don't necessarily have the skill sets to do that. And um, a lot of it is even just down to the, the point of like, you know, a few hundred years ago, it was imperative that you were able to, you know, find things that were edible. Like that was kind of your primary objective. Whereas now, like we go to the grocery store and we buy them. So like, we just don't have that working knowledge in our brain anymore of like, I walk up to this plant. Oh, I can eat that. I walk up to that. Oh, I can't eat that. You know, walk up to this creature. Oh, I can, I can, you know, hunt it and eat it and prepare it and and do all that stuff. Is that part of the problem with some of this where like a small change in the environment could potentially put us into a situation where we're kind of, thrust back into the stone age, so to speak, and we just don't have the tools to survive in the stone age any longer? Well, yes, that's what I used to believe. And that's why one of the reasons I left active service at the University of Arizona, moved to a homestead that I developed in rural New Mexico, just very immediately downriver from the first designated wilderness area in the world, right along the river that flowed out of the Gila wilderness, the Gila River, the last unregulated river in New Mexico. So I thought, this is the place. I'm going to go back to land. I'm going to set an example. And because I'm a reasonably um, intelligent and successful professor, of course, everybody's going to follow my lead. And that was hilarious when I look <laughs> back. <laughs> and, and so I thought if a bunch of people followed my lead, that we'd be okay, that, that at least several hundred thousand, maybe even a few million individuals would persist. But no, I was completely ignorant of something called the aerosol masking effect or global dimming. The aerosol masking effect or global dimming is based on the idea, now well supported by evidence, that industrial activity produces the greenhouse gases that most of us know about. Things like carbon dioxide get put up into the atmosphere as a result of starting the car and turning on the lights. And there are more than 40 other greenhouse gases as well, including water vapor and methane and chlorofluorocarbons, and the list goes on. At the same time as industrial activity produces those greenhouse gases, which serve as a blanket to hold the temperature of the earth at a high temperature, to disallow some of the long wave radiation from escaping back into space and therefore serving as a blanket to warm the earth. At the same time industrial activity does that, industrial activity also produces aerosols, thus the phrase the aerosol masking effect. These aerosols go up into the upper atmosphere and serve as an umbrella. So the incoming sunlight can't even get in to the atmosphere, the lower atmosphere and warm the planet. 
And here's the really bad news, that umbrella effect disappears at the rate of hours, days, at most a few weeks. So those aerosols are constantly falling out of the atmosphere. If we weren't constantly putting them up there, the planet would be much hotter than it is right now. So industrial activity is simultaneously warming the planet over the long term and over the short term, the very short term, also cooling the planet. If we reduce the aerosol masking effect, never mind get rid of it completely, if we reduce it as little as 20%, maybe even less, that will cause a near-term temperature spike of one degree Celsius. Well, that's huge. And, and, and by near term, I'm talking about days or weeks, not months. And that's a far more rapid rate of change than essentially any organism on the planet can keep up with. Trees will not survive when faced with a temperature spike in the region that they are living because that's where they have evolved to live. So the trees around here, I now live in a suburb of Orlando, Florida, so I'm one move beyond where you thought I was. I like to stay one step ahead of the people trying to catch up to me. And so the trees around here, they can't keep up with a one degree Celsius global average temperature spike. Neither can the trees in New York, where I moved from. Neither can the trees in Belize, where I was living for two and a half years before moving to New York and so on. And without trees, we don't have a lot of other species as well. When we lose our life support system in the form of large trees, the grasses that support the organisms that we eat in every conceivable way, the organisms that clean the water and provide the food, when we lose those little things and even the big things, we're in real trouble. And, uh, you know, it sounds more complicated than it is, but the bottom line is we depend upon a whole bunch of organisms that we're driving to extinction. The rate of environmental change right now is 10 times faster than at any other time in planetary history, as nearly as we can tell. That's enormous. And no surprise, the rate of extinction of the ongoing mass extinction event is about 10 times faster than any other previous mass extinction event. To think we would escape that when we are so altering the physical environment on which we depend for our survival and also causing so many other species to go extinct is just sheer hubris. You know, you, you, can't, you can't go into the game room with a Gatling gun and start firing and not expect there to be some negative outcome. And that's where we are. Let me, let me just kind of uh, further develop this global dimming effect of this aerosol problem. You know, I remember when I was younger and, and I'm, I'm born in 67. So I think I'm about six or seven years younger than you, but um, we, we talked about hydro, hydrofluorocarbons, you know, the thing, you know, hairspray and refrigerants and in, 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 in the, in the, in the, refrigerators we have and I think we made a concerted effort to cut back on those things and so um, did that have the effect is that having the effect causing us to to uh, you know heat up quicker because we're not cooling I mean do we need to just keep go back to spraying hairspray everywhere I mean what what no 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 that's ozone so okay, that's ozone that, that's, that's atmospheric ozone high in the atmosphere and that's a different thing than the aerosols the ozone, it was during the Reagan administration of all things. And by the way, he was unconvinced until he developed a little cancerous spot on his nose. 
and it was pointed out that there's a link between the incoming sunlight and the rates of cancer on things like people's noses. And then he goes, oh, we should do something about this. And the United States became a worldwide leader in getting rid of, in phasing out over time, chlorofluorocarbons that were largely responsible for the thinning of the ozone. And only about 30 years later, the ozone hole over Antarctica stopped growing and stabilized. So there's this tremendous lag. The lag with carbon dioxide is, is equally long. The temperature associated with current levels of carbon dioxide are locked in for at least the next thousand years. So there's this lag between the carbon, when the carbon dioxide goes up into the atmosphere and when it serves its warming effect. But yes, we have, as a species, as a civilization, done remarkable things when faced with dire existential threats. And so, don't get me wrong, I don't want us to go extinct any more than the next person. And so, if we can find that, that miracle cure, as it were, I'm a huge fan. And in fact, I'm working with engineers at Harvard, and from Berkeley to try to mitigate or overwhelm the loss of the aerosol masking effect. And I've been working on that project for about six months, I guess. And the, the people at Harvard are taking the lead on it. And so, you know, I really want to figure out how to mitigate for the loss of the aerosol masking effect. I really want to figure out how we can start capturing and sequestering carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. I think we're proceeding too slowly at this point to catch up with the rates of ongoing change, but I'm not willing to throw up my hands and say, oh, we're screwed, we're, we lost the battle, we're done. Yeah, that's there what is. I was gonna kind of ask you too, was because you know it's almost kind of interesting because when I look at a lot of the climate debate stuff <clears throat> that goes on kind of in the mainstream, it's like you get the folks who are projecting it to be, albeit much slower than you are, but what a lot of people would consider at an aggressive rate. And then there's folks who are saying, oh, it's a myth, which I think is a, getting to be a pretty small minority at this point. But um, it, it, like when you mentioned in the beginning that like you've had a lot of backlash with this, part of me thinks like given like the last few years, some folks would almost want to gravitate towards your, your theory because even if you're wrong, it would send us in the right direction if you think that climate is going to be a threatening thing, even if it's, say, 60 years down the road versus in the next five or six years. Have you kind of seen a turn towards that where folks who would have otherwise maybe thought you were thinking a little too aggressively are now saying, hey, let's just, let's just go with this? Because right now, I think the, one of the biggest problems with the whole situation is historically it's just been too far away in people's minds for them to act at the individual level or to really take action in the voting box and things like that. So like, you know, if they, if people think, Oh, we're in trouble in five or six years, they're probably a lot more likely to behave accordingly versus this is going to happen sometime, you know, in the next generation's lifetime versus my lifetime. Right. I couldn't agree more. And I have seen those kinds of changes as people have been catching up to, 
my way of thinking, which I refer to as catching up with the evidence that I've been studying for long enough, apparently, to reach conclusions before most people. But consider, for example, September of 2018, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, said we have until 2020. We have until 2020 to make significant changes. Guess what? We didn't change a thing. And then about a month later, the IPCC came out with their report that shook the world, they switched from the 2100 timeline to the 2030 timeline and said, do we have until 2030 to make profound changes in the way we live, whatever that means. And so since I've been talking about things like 2030, I've been talking about 2030 for many years. And then finally the evidence overwhelmed me and, and, and I started saying an even earlier date for our extinction. And so as the evidence has caught up to the position that I held embarrassingly in no small part because of intuition, and most scientists are unwilling to admit that they use intuition to reach any conclusion, but the evidence has, been, has definitely been catching up with the position I, that I've held for a long time, that we don't have long on this planet because of the rate of environmental change and because we depend upon so many other species. This idea of co-extinctions finally was published in that paper, as I mentioned, in late 2018 by Strona and Bradshaw. And, and it's always biologists who are pointing these things out. It's always biologists and ecologists who are indicating that we are in real trouble. And I would argue that's, that there's a good reason for that. And that's because biologists and ecologists understand the intricate nature of our relationship with other species on the planet. There've been only two papers, the first two papers in 2015 and 2017, both senior authored by Gerardo Ceballos, who's a conservation biologist. And they, they both papers had Paul Ehrlich, who is a renowned conservation biologist. And they were the papers that indicated that we're in the midst of a mass extinction event. It's, it doesn't lie at some future time if we don't change our behavior or whatever. It's not starting now, but particularly in their, in their 2017 paper, now about two and a half years old, they indicate that we're in the midst of biological annihilation. That's a term I don't see in the refereed journal literature very often, annihilation, because scientists tend to be pretty conservative but they were not at all conservative with that report. So again, just further indications that the, that a significant number of scientists are catching up with the position that I've held for quite a long time. And I'm not happy about it. And I'm never going to be able to say, I told you so, because I'll be dead by the time we're all dead. So, but that's the least of my problems. I'm still looking for potential solutions, even though I, in, you know, in my rational brain, I think that they don't exist. Because if it takes a miracle, and we've never had a miracle before, that sounds problematic. But we're talking about the human race here and a whole hell of a lot of other species as well. So I think that's something worth putting a little effort into. So the, I'm just kind of curious as to the metric, because you talk about biological extinctions and, you know, we hear about, you know, we're killing all the bees and the bees, and, you know, they, because we're, we're, we're turning them into almond slaves or whatever. Um, you know, we've got this temperature thing that, that we, you know, my, some people, you know, not to be, well, I think it's fair to point out that you're, you have a very, uh, you know, not a very common view. I mean, even the people that would, the climate scientists 
are not going to simply say we're all going to be dead in six years. And there are equally, there are people that say, hey, man, the sun's heating up, the sun's cooling down. We've got different different viewpoints in there. There's this grand solar minimum coming and we, we're in a interglacial period. It's going to get cold again and we may, we may go back into the ice age again. And so when we look at temperature, you know, there's people that talk about the ocean temperature. What is the average ocean temperature? And then there's, you know, are we looking at the polar regions where we've seen glaciers going away? What, what are the biologic things? Are we seeing, can we quantify like the species that are already dying? I mean, what, what, what metric are you using or metrics are you using to, to reach this conclusion? And how do you draw the line in exactly 2026 and not 2027? I mean, we're, we're, I mean, that seems like a pretty bold prediction to say, I mean, do you have it down to the day or is it just the year? I mean, that's, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> right. So that's based on a, uh, an analysis conducted by Sam Karana in 2016. Sam Karana is a pen name for a university scientist, probably from England. But in any event, Karana produced several of what I would consider very conservative projections based upon where we're at now. More recently, I have written about seven unique different ways that we can lose habitat for Homo sapiens in the near future. Perhaps the best studied and the, the most widely acknowledged of those is a blue ocean event or loss of ice in the Arctic Ocean. And even the president of Norway, was it? Finland? Now it's escaping me, sorry. In, in, a, in a press conference with Donald Trump in the Oval Office, indicated that when we lose the Arctic, we lose the globe. So what he's talking about, so he's summarizing a bunch of scientific information with that relatively cryptic statement. If we lose the Arctic ice for the first time in human history, then the planet will undoubtedly heat up so rapidly that our species and most others will not survive. The paper by Strona and Bradshaw from November 2018 that I mentioned earlier indicates that as little as a five or six degrees Celsius global average temperature rise will cause the extinction of all life on Earth. All life on Earth and an ice-free Arctic will almost certainly have that impact in the near term after the Arctic becomes free of ice. A paper in the 2012 Annual Review of Earth and Planetary Sciences by Wieslav Maslowski and colleagues indicated that we were headed for an ice-free Arctic in 2016, plus or minus three years. I talked with Dr. Maslowski when I was on a speaking tour last spring in Monterey, Monterey Bay. He came to the accommodation where I was staying. We had a recorded conversation. And he said, fortunately, that projection was incorrect, that indeed we did not and would not have an ice-free Arctic in 2016, plus or minus three years. And obviously that takes us till 2019. I was speaking with him in, I believe it was April of 2019, and he said, it's not going to happen. And he was right. So, you know, so what if he was off by a few years? I don't find very many climate scientists who are saying we will have ice significant ice cover in the Arctic five years from now. And if that, if that factor alone causes a, an abrupt rise in global average temperature sufficient to destroy all life on Earth, I think we need to take that sort of thing seriously. And there are several other means by which we could lose habitat for our favorite species as well. 
And once it's lost, there's no getting it back. You know, there's millions of acres in Australia now that will never support koalas again. Never. Because the rate of environmental change has proceeded too quickly, producing these catastrophic bushfires. And so there's, there's entire islands, Kangaroo Island comes immediately to mind, where sufficient habitat loss has occurred that it will almost certainly never come back and certainly not for generations. Well, we're in the midst of a mass extinction event. We don't have generations to fix things anymore. In fact, I don't see how we can fix whatever it is that's wrong with environmental issues and most notably climate in anything less than five or six or 10 or 20 years. But that's not to say let's throw in the towel and party like it's 1999. <laughs> that is after all what got us here. Let me ask you, so if you, you know, and, and we, we, uh, presumably the, the technology or the way to do this doesn't yet exist or may never exist, but if you had this magic, you know, wand, I mean, what would you, what would be the, what would be the thing that you would have to be done to sort of either if, avoid this, slow it down, you know, and hopefully turn it around? I mean, we hear, uh, you know, in the news, it's everybody, we just, we just need to stop eating meat and it's going to save the world. Um, you know, I, when I look at, when I look at at least, you know, greenhouse gases, I see it's you know, mostly fossil fuels. I mean, the agriculture industry is, is a small fraction of that, even though it's being sort of touted as, you know, save the planet, you know, eat the, eat the plant burger. But what, um, what would you do? What, 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 what could magically be done? And again, I'm saying magic because I don't know that we have the technology. What, what would change things? Yeah, you bring up an important point. Even The Guardian, USA Today, and RT, pretty mainstream corporate media outlets, have concluded that veganism is no solution. So let's set that aside right away. In fact, I don't think there are any magical solutions, including the way we eat. However, so, so that indicates that we have to do several things at the same time. The most important of these with respect to abrupt climate change, the potential for truly catastrophic environmental change in a span of weeks is the aerosol masking effect. We need to somehow come up with a way to mitigate for or substitute for the aerosol masking effect. Because for example, if we all agree that we're gonna go back to the indigenous life, even though we're 99% of us are wholly incapable of doing so, Let's say we're going to turn off the switch of industrial civilization because we think that's what's going to be what saves the planet, whatever that means. Okay, well, nobody's going to agree to that. But even if they did, let's say that, that I had the magic power to shut off the switch of industrial civilization. If I did that, and this is the idea promoted by organizations such as Deep Green Resistance and their stunning ignorance. If we do that, it'll cause the temperature of the earth to heat up even faster than it is heating up as a result of industrial civilization. So I think the most important, the first and most important thing we need to do is mitigate for the aerosol masking effect. Because even a relatively minor reduction in industrial activity at this point is gonna cause a temperature spike that we will not survive. Okay, so that's the first thing. And that's why I'm working with these folks, these engineers who are interested in, in addressing this issue. The second thing is we have to do something about the greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere, as well as those that are being pumped up into the atmosphere through our daily lives. 
What does that mean? I think it means at least a hundred different things. Coming up with a way to capture and sequester carbon dioxide has got to be on the list of important topics. And it's not just carbon dioxide, it's methane. And it's not just carbon dioxide and methane, it's water vapor. Most people don't realize that the far and away the most abundant greenhouse gas in the atmosphere is water vapor. And there's a positive feedback here. The warmer we heat the earth, the more rapidly water evaporates off of it. And that water vapor goes up into the, into the atmosphere and serves as a lens, just like the, the lens I held when I was an ignorant small child to try to burn up the ants, right? The magnifying glass. It's the same thing at a much larger scale. So we have to reduce the ongoing heating of the planet, which causes more water vapor to go up and accelerate the heating of the planet. So there's a handful of things right there, and I don't know how to do any of them. But if, you know, if I was emperor for a day of planet Earth, I would, I would make this the priority, not, going or not having mainstream scientists from every major university in the country going around and defaming me because they say I'm an idiot. That's not doing any good. How about we focus on the evidence and focus on potential solutions instead of going around and calling me names? I mean, that might be a start. All right, folks, this episode of Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a meat delivery company that brings you high quality beef, chicken, pork, salmon, and scallops. What does this mean? All products are natural and humanely raised or sustainably wild caught, as is the case with their salmon and scallops. If you are concerned with how the animals you eat were raised, rest assured, ButcherBox partners with farmers who are inspired by Dr. Temple Grandin, a member of the Humane Farm Animal Care Program's scientific committee. Their beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished, the chicken is organic and the pork is heritage breed with no added sugar. So head over to butcherbox.com and place an order today. And don't forget to enter promo code HPO for a discount. Thank you for supporting one of our longstanding sponsors. Now back to the show. Professor McPherson, you kind of answered what was going to be my next question, which was essentially the you know, this idea of we've kind of passed the date that I think some people think we're approaching where it is like we can just change our habits and have that and have everything kind of reverse slowly over time. So then that kind of leads us into a position of what I think people are fearful of happening down the road. We're in a position where we have to solve this, like from a technological standpoint, where we have to figure out something that we can't really do naturally necessarily or individually in order to combat what we've already done. So you mentioned like a few things that you would focus on. Is there any kind of like promising research or work that's focusing like that, that you say, okay, this is potentially something that would lead to a solution or are they so ground level at that right now where it's, it's really uncertain? I'd say the latter. There are dozens of individual projects that are working on things like carbon capture and sequestration that so far do not scale up. None of them that I've seen scale up at a reasonable level so that we can actually implement them soon and have them operating soon. And part of this is because civilization itself, industrial civilization is a heat engine. 
And Tim Garrett, who is an atmospheric scientist at the University of Utah, has done a, an enormous amount of work on this very idea and has received all kinds of negative feedback from his colleagues in the climate science community. But nobody questions the evidence. Civilization itself is a heat engine and it doesn't really matter how we power it. Solar panels, wind turbines, wave power, whatever, whatever keeps this set of living arrangements going, heats up the planet. Okay, so that's one piece of what has been called the McPherson paradox by a supporter of mine, Bill Eddy. Industrial civilization is heating the planet. The other side of the coin is, as I've already indicated, if we, if we reduce industrial activity, much less stop it completely, that will cause the temperature of the earth to spike even faster. So you want your doomed if you do, doomed if you don't situation, there you have it. We're in the midst of abrupt irreversible climate change due to an in rapid increase in planetary temperature as a result of industrial activity. And if we reduce industrial activity, we spike that temperature even faster. So I don't know a way out. I, I keep looking for ways out of this situation as do a few other people, but uh, I just don't see it happening in time. You know, there's this great clip from the newsroom Perhaps you've seen it from fall 2014, written by Aaron Sorkin. This is, a, this is an HBO program that ran for three years. And they have this climate scientist on the air. And right after that show aired, a lot of people asked me if I was getting some sort of salary for inspiring the character, the, the guy who worked for the EPA who came on the air and in response to the anchor's questions said, we're done. It's hopeless. We needed to do things decades ago, not now. We're, the, we're just not going to survive this thing. And that was more than five years ago. I suspect he was right. And it made for great television because it was fiction and everybody knew it was fiction. But I think it's fact. And I don't see us getting through this bottleneck. What would you say, you know, like I said, if, if we're on your timeline, then we would see some things predict, you know, you would have some predictions of things that are going to happen. So can you walk us through the next five or six years, what you see happening sequentially that would, 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 would sort of, you know, say that this is indeed happening? Like, I mean, is there a certain, is a certain species going to go out? Is, what are we going to see, you know, uh, as, we, as we reach this date that, that you say that we're going to be extinct by? Yeah, according to the United Nations, in a rep report issued August of 2010, we're driving 150 to 200 species to extinction every day. That's a lot. And I had a, <clears throat> a guest on my radio show, I can't remember his name, who actually did the math and concluded that we're driving to extinction more than 200 species a day right now. And so, of course, the United Nations report from 2010 was conservative. That's what we expect from any large organization, including the United Nations. I have for many years been predicting that the interior of large continents will soon be facing fires, the likes of which we are unable to put out or control. And Australia, anybody? So I've been receiving a lot of email messages from people who prefer to remain mm, nameless indicating that, wow, it looks like you got that right. And 
And the reason I quote got that right is because I've been tracking the evidence for a long time and, and promulgating that evidence. Another huge factor that has long been predicted and that is now underway is the exponential release of methane from the Arctic Ocean. The East Siberian Arctic Shelf is the largest continental shelf in the world. That's where Natalia Shkova and her research team, including her partner, her partner Igor Semelotov, have been conducting research for well over a decade with many, many expeditions beneath and on top of the ice there. And sure enough, as expected, the methane being released from the Siberian Arctic Shelf and the Arctic Ocean generally has clearly gone exponential. And that's really, really horrible news because methane is more than 100 times more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is. So for every molecule of methane, CH4, that's at least 100 times more powerful than a molecule of carbon dioxide, CO2. And so that's extremely problematic and it's clearly underway. In addition, there's terrestrial permafrost and you don't have to look far onto your social media platforms to find some video, some indication of enormous slumping of what used to be permafrost that has thawed out and now has become liquefied. So on these hill slopes, we're seeing enormous areas that are, you know, a meter or two meters thick of soil of former permafrost that have melted and now they're sliding down the hill and covering the roads and so on, destroying the infrastructure. That's when humans tend to notice is when it gets in our way. <laughs> and so we're seeing terrestrial permafrost literally melting before our eyes. We're seeing the permafrost emanating from marine systems, most notably the Arctic Ocean, but not completely the Arctic Ocean. We're seeing that go crazy. We're seeing what's called isostatic rebound, contributing to increased volcanism around the world, most notably around the, the Pacific Ring of Fire. And isostatic rebound refers to what happens when you have continental plates adjacent to each other and one continental plate, we'll say the North American plate, has a lot of water on it in the form of ice, glaciers. And when those glaciers melt, when the ice runs off and goes into the Pacific plate, that is the Pacific Ocean, this land gets lighter and moves up. This water, the, the plate underneath the Pacific Ocean gets heavier because it has more water on top of it, so it moves down. And it's not a gradual moving that we've been alerted to. So this, this cracking and separating and falling apart at places like, you know, the San Andreas Fault causes problems, causes earthquakes and increased volcanic activity. And so we're seeing that particularly around, as I indicated, the Pacific Ring of Fire. So these are the kinds of things that have long been predicted by people like Al Gore and Carl Sagan on the floor of Congress in the early 1980s by James Hansen, same thing, late 1980s. These are the kinds of things that people have been warning us about for generations. You know, we can go back to our Svente Arrhenius in April of 1896 with the first real peer-reviewed 
journal article on the topic indicating that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere alone is going to profoundly heat the planet. And he, you know, he nailed it almost exactly right. He, he forecast a one degree Celsius global average temperature rise in 1896 by the year 2000. He was off by a little less than a quarter of a degree, not bad 140 years in advance. And so uh, also go back to 1847, George Perkins Marsh, the naturalist and ambassador, United States ambassador, indicating that if we burn fossil fuels, we're going to warm up the planet. That's 1847. And, you know, so we've been receiving these warnings for a very long time. I have an essay at, at my blog, guymcpherson.com, called Extinction Foretold, Extinction Ignored. And I point out the many, many cases of people warning us that if we keep on this path, we're going to drive ourselves to extinction. Well, we're on the path. In, in fact, we're not just on the path that, that we've been warned about for nearly 200 years. We got a Maserati on the path. There's no slowing us down at this point. It's pedal to the metal, baby. You hear that things are gonna be dire in the future? Seems like the standard human response is to pour gas onto the fire. Yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, we're seeing, obviously we've got more people on the planet. They're projecting more people on the planet and, and those countries that previously were relatively poor are gaining access to wealth. The wealth drives industrialization, you know, energy needs, you know, consumable goods, those all things contribute to the, to the, uh, you know, to the overall effect, I suppose. Um, and, you know, back to methane, you know, I, I, you know, I've seen numbers, you know, more like 32 times, I think IPCC puts it at that, if I'm not yes. mistaken, rather than a hundredfold. And I know that, you know, in methane, there's different ways to calculate. One of the things that I've, you know, cause I've sort of argued that cows aren't driving the planet, global climate change, like a lot of people that would disagree. And, and we, when we look at, from what I've seen, atmospheric sampling of methane, looking at isotopic you know, signatures, we can see it's, it's coming from places that we, you know, we can see what's in the atmosphere whether, when we do a top-down analysis, but when we do a bottom-up analysis, we can only measure certain things. So we don't know what every, everything is producing methane. And as you point out, the ocean, the wetlands, which are hard to measure, you know, these are things we can, we can, we can, we can strap a little machine on our cow and measure how much he belches and, and, and extrapolate it and say, we've got 1.4 billion cattle and therefore, this is what cows put up, but we have no way of really accurately measuring all the methane coming from all over the other places in the world. At least I don't see how that's feasible, you know, to do so. And we, we seem to find new sources, whether it's hydroelectric power, fracking, uh, you know, wetlands, termites, who knows? So there's all these methane issues in there. And so, um, and you talk about, you know, uh, this global greenhouse gas type of issue. And I know that that is a little bit con it's different than the, the aerosol masking effect that you're describing. But when it comes to the greenhouse gases, I mean, clearly any data I've seen, including IPCC says, look, it's fossil fuels. Uh, climate change guys like Michael Mann say, look, it's fossil fuels. Uh, how do we, you know, you know, again, you, you, it's kind of like a little, a little, you know, we're, we're just behind the curve and we can't, we can't slow down even if we wanted to. I mean, what can we do? I mean, what is, uh, what is the fossil fuel situation? Can we, do we just all just, you know, get bicycles and, and take mass trans, transit? Do we need to invest in that? I mean, again, obviously, I mean, from the agricultural side, I know there's a lot of people that are demonstrating now that we can, we can actually re-sequester re, re some carbon, you know, using, using cattle in a particular way, but that's all, right. what you're saying, that's a little too late, you know, and that not enough. Right. So, so let me address the 32 times that the IPCC puts out. The methane is 32 times more powerful in greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. That's based on a 100-year projection. 
if so if we stop right now if we stop emitting methane then 100 years from now because methane breaks down relatively quickly it only turns out to be 30 times 32 times more powerful if you look at less than 20 years it's more than 100 times if you look at less than 5 years it's more than 150 times and these things are relatively easily measured in the laboratory so there's not much confusion about them except for the confusion that is generated by people who are advertently or inadvertently promulgating a message appreciated by the fossil fuel community. Okay, so then what can we do? I don't think as a society there's anything that can be done. I think as individuals there are lots of things that we can do. We can live with urgency. We can live as if our lives are short because they are. Let, let's consider that I'm wrong about everything. And, and I've been wrong about a lot of things. And there are people keeping track of all of them. <laughs> so, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we aren't going to go extinct at all. Your life is still short. Maybe your life will not be shortened that you'll live to the ripe old age of 90 or 100. We'll figure out some way to keep us all going forever. Well, we've known about the perils of human immortality for a long time. But let's say that you live the normal life to the age of 87 or whatever the normal life is. That's still short. You know, when I was touring Western Europe about five years ago, the oldest woman on earth at the time was 117 years old. And she was asked at her 117th birthday to make a statement about her life so so far. And she said, it seemed rather short. 117 years seemed rather short. Well, you're not gonna live to be 117. I'm not gonna be, live to be 117. I'd be willing to bet on both of those cases. It will seem rather short. I don't know very many people who are on their deathbed are thinking, geez, I wish I would have bought more shoes. I, you know, what I observe when people are in hospice and the stories I read indicate that people wish they had done some things, they have regrets about death, about their own dying, that indicate completing relationships as being important. So for example, they feel like they treated somebody badly or they feel like somebody treated them badly and they want closure on that situation. Those are the kinds of things that I see that I think are important to pursue. And that's been a primary focus of my work for more than the last five years is encouraging people to terminate those toxic relationships and move on to healthier relationships. The self-care is important. And Almost nobody talks about that. And self-care comes at the emotional and intellectual level as well as at the physical level. So I think there's a lot of things we can do as individuals that will improve our own lives, not necessarily lengthen our lives, but you know, I'd rather live an adventurous full life for 59 years that I've had so far than uh, 80 years of being cautious at every step and making sure I have enough money in the bank to get groceries this week and so on. You know, living adventurously is its own reward and I can't recommend it enough. And instead what I see is people very concerned about 
what their bank account is going to look like 15 years from now. Yeah, I think that's reasonable advice, regardless of, you know, extreme extinction or not. I mean, that's, you know, like I said, uh, we'll, we'll see that as, you know, something to pay attention to. And quality of life is incredibly important. Yeah, and not spending your time in toxic situations, toxic relationships, you know, that type of thing is. And, and by the way, if you think my projection is insane, just look at what Sam Corana has done recently at the Arctic News blog, where he, she frequently writes. Um, Sam Corana is predicting human extinction in 2020. You know, in other words, we're counting the days at this point. What is it? 366 minus 16 is 350 days. And then we're all gone. I disagree with that, by the way. I think we might well have functional extinction as a result of the El Nino that is almost certain to occur this year and the self-reinforcing feedback loops that are accelerated or triggered by the El Nino Southern Oscillation. But I have never and will never predict that we're gonna go extinct in 350 days. I think there will be sociopaths and bunkers who persist until sometime in 2026. Well, but in, but to be fair, in 2026, you'll make that prediction that we have 350 days. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If we make it that long, if I'm on your show, and I hope I am, yeah. you know, this is, again, this is not the kind of thing I want to have happen. I'd love to be on your show five, six years from now and having this conversation and saying, Guy McPherson, you really screwed the pooch on that one. And I'd be the happiest person on the planet and say, yep, I certainly did. People ask me all the time, what are you going to do if you're wrong? And I have the same answer every time. I'm going to celebrate. What are you going to do if I'm right? And you yeah, discover yeah. too late. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a very fair point. Um, you know, I'm just trying to think what, what else that, that would might be interesting and relevant to this. I mean, because it's, you know, like I said, it's a huge, uh, huge topic that, uh, you know, I know you have a lot of expertise in, but are we, um, you know, like these, you know, we're seeing fires in Australia, we're seeing fires in the Congo, obviously we see the Amazonian rainforest fires. I mean, some of that's obviously intentional, uh, you know, I mean, that's just the way people farm. I mean, they, 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 they've got a bunch of brush and they want they need to get rid of it to improve, improve the land for further agriculture. And so, I mean, right. so slashing, slashing and burning in the Amazon right. basin made good sense when there were relatively few people living there and you only had to return to a specific plot of ground every generation. But now 7.7 billion people on the planet, it's a terrible idea. You know, I lived in Central America and Belize for about two and a half years and you see the same sorts of land management activities going on there that people were doing 500 years ago and it doesn't make sense now. My question, you know, because you said, you know, 150 species are going extinct, extinct daily. I mean, we've got, I mean, that indicates we have you know, millions upon millions of species, first of all. Secondly, outside of this recent period, which we were measuring this, how do we know what the extinction rates were, say, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 10,000 years ago? I mean, obviously, we're more sophisticated measuring those things and even calculating how much is there. So how, how do we verify that this is an increased rate over even, say, 50 years ago? Or can we do that? Yeah. And so we rely upon our, the relationship between the extinction rate that we can measure and the extrapolation to those that we cannot. We know almost nothing about planet Earth. 
I mean, as somebody, somebody who's studied earth science for a very long time, it's almost embarrassing how little we know about the earth beneath our feet. But we do know things like this. If you stand on any terrestrial point on the planet, like here or where you are, you go outside and you count, because we can't actually count the number of species in say a square mile. We know that the number of species in that square mile is at least in order of magnitude less than the square, than the cubic meter directly beneath your feet. And we don't know 5% of the species that are beneath your feet. You know, there's, there's probably, according to the peer-reviewed literature, there's probably more than a trillion species of microbes alone. We've named a handful. That's it. So we rely upon things like this, this notion I already talked about, extinction cascades. Once we have a mass extinction event in motion, we can predict with great certainty that at least 50% of the species on the planet are going to go extinct. And those things are relatively easily measured, easily measured for paleoecologists looking at the fossil record. It's by no means easy, but at least there's a set of standardized techniques that allow the scientific community to agree that this species was here and now it's not. And we can do that and can count the species. We know that we are heating the planet at a faster rate than has ever been observed before. We have a lot of proxy records now that are well-tested and verified. So we can rely upon tree rings and ice cores and look in isotopic evidence in, with carbon and strontium and so forth and look back in time and see what the rates of change were. So all of those things are, are really good metrics for where we're at, looking into the past, including the very deep past and projecting into the future. Are they without flaws? Of course not. Are there more discoveries on the way that will demonstrate how little we know today? Yes, there's little doubt in my mind. But I'm pretty confident at this point, given the rate of acceleration of environmental change as a result of human activities, industrial activities, that we're headed for a place that the planet has never been in terms of rate of change, the rapidity of the change, and the ability of organisms to keep up. So that's the primary underpinning of my work and leads to the conclusions that I've drawn. Let me um, ask you, because we actually we just didn't talk about this. So, you know, you know, let's say assume the planet heats up, let's just say in the next five years, it heats up a degree Celsius, which would be by your admission, a huge increase, right? That would be uh, too much that we could adapt to. But what would be I mean, what are we going to die of? Are we going to starve to death? Are we going to freeze to death? Are we going to burn up? I mean, what? I mean, I assume, my assumption is we're going to starve to death. But I mean, what? What do you think the the the, the demise of the human species is going to be uh, related to? I think there will be three primary factors: the demise of industrial civilization in places with a large number of people as a result of the inability the inability to grow grains at scale. So that's huge. This civilization, as with all previous civilizations, depends upon the ability to grow, store, and distribute grains at large scale. Without wheat, without soybeans, without corn, this society is toast. So starvation. 
But for most people, I suspect, especially people in the so-called developed world, like the United States, Western Canada, Australia, and so on, most of us will not die from starvation because most of us have a little padding that will get us through a few weeks. Instead, most people will die because the stuff that we have come to depend upon coming out of the taps no longer does. That's the demise of industrial civilization. So when we can no longer, when, when there's a disruption in the supply chain of anything important to this set of living arrangements, then the whole thing collapses in the span of a couple of weeks. And this, this has been well studied and there is little counter evidence to support the idea that we can just keep this thing lurching along at some lower level, but sustain it indefinitely. Okay, so food and water are huge, starvation and dehydration, and I suspect dehydration will get most of us who are living in places like where I live, Orlando, Florida, where there's way too damn many people occupying way too small an area. What's next? In places like this, and where I lived in Western Billy's, lethal wet bulb temperature. And this is already having a profound effect in places like Bangladesh. Lethal wet bulb temperature occurs when some combination of high temperature and high humidity cause organ failure in humans. We were seeing it play out in real time in Belize with people who are working outdoors, including me. You work outdoors, it's hot, it's humid. People start acting like they're drunk. And if you don't know what, you, what to look for, you would never notice. And that person who's acting like they're drunk um, suddenly is making bad decisions. They fall off the second floor and they die of a broken neck. They didn't really die of a broken neck. That was the ultimate cause, but the proximate cause was lethal wet bulb temperature that was causing their organs to fail. If you don't know what you're looking for, that's gonna happen a lot. And I suspect it's happening a lot right now and we're not hearing about it. Let me, um, you know, if we say that the, the, the global average temperature goes up a degree Celsius, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, in the tropics, it goes up one degree. I mean, there's got to be some variation. So what are we looking at in temperature swings? Is it 10 degrees Fahrenheit difference? I mean, wh where do we, because I mean, obviously it's not one degree in every region of the planet. It's going to be variations. Right. How does that look? Right. You're absolutely right. And we're already seeing at the poles, the temperature is heating up more rapidly than it is in terms of the global average. So the Arctic is warming up three to five times faster than the global average. So, and, and that doesn't bode well because the poles are where people tend to think of as they're being habitat for humans into the future because they're the relatively cool places. What's happening is the jet streams are breaking down, both the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere jet streams are breaking down. So we no longer have that enormous difference in temperature between the poles and the equator. As a consequence, the poles are heating up even faster than the global average. But you're right, there will be places that the rate of change will be slower. However, The moving to a high altitude, for example, or moving to a high latitude is not going to provide any insurance against the aerosol masking effect 
or against the catastrophic uncontrolled meltdown of the world's 450 plus nuclear power stations. So, you know, if, if you want to live in a world, say 20 years from now, largely bunker driven, so you're depending for the food you have stored, the canned peaches in your bunker to persist, and you don't mind marinating in ionizing radiation for the rest of your days, then you might be able to, to eke out an existence for a few more years. Is that living? I would argue that it's not. Interestingly, I made the decision to live that way when I was aware of gradual linear climate change rather than abrupt irreversible climate change. And also when for some reason I forgot about those nuclear power plants that are gonna melt down. So I tried living that way for a while and, and I learned more and more about the aerosol masking effect. Increasing evidence was produced in the peer-reviewed literature. And so I decided that was no way to live because it wasn't living at all. Are you still, I think we maybe, oh, yeah, I was gonna ask you ask you about this nuclear power plant meltdown. I mean, why, why are the nuclear power plants gonna melt? Even first responders stop responding during a critical emergency. They go home to be with their families because even police officers and firefighters recognize when the situation is beyond their ability to control, they better get back to their family so they can either spend more time with them or try to protect them. The same applies to the nuclear power plant. Those things have to have people there 24 seven. In addition, they rely completely upon grid tied power. We saw what happened at Fukushima when the grid was shut off and a, a few hours or days later, the backup generators failed. That's gonna happen to all of the nuclear power plants around the world. Even if I were working in a nuclear power plant, even if I was willing to sacrifice more than any human being in the history of the planet, I would stop going. I'm not gonna to try to save the planet, whatever that means, when I know there's 450 more of these things scattered around the world, nobody's going to work there. I'm gonna go, go live my final hours, days, weeks, whatever it is with the people I love, rather than trying to protect everybody in the world from an event that is going to happen whether I serve as the superhero or not. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> also depressing. <laughs> yeah, well, it it and it seems like it's just like you, you can go down any one of these rabbit holes and see kind of a negative consequence and then you find, you know, more and more. And, you know, one that you kind of mentioned that I was also curious what your thoughts about was just like because people think of like the climate change they think of like the melting of the polar ice caps and some of that stuff and just kind of this receding of the glaciers and you know that's one aspect to it but then comes like everything that's been frozen up in that stuff from since essentially the beginning of time and what type of like uh, methane or carbon release is going to happen that's tied up in that what i guess is essentially the same as a sink in the sense that like you get you know, non-decomposed corpses that have been frozen that now start to decompose because they're unfrozen. Is that something that's also kind of part of that like multiplier effect you were explaining and, before? Absolutely. And it's not just the greenhouse gases that are released. It's the diseases that are released. Mm. You know, there's, there's a bunch of diseases that were frozen over that we completely forgot about. 
And now they're being released again. I was teaching the impacts of climate change on mostly insect carriers of disease in my classes 20 years ago. And now, now you just look around, Lyme disease, anybody? Everybody has it. You know, Lyme disease has just gone crazy because a small increase in the lower temperature, small increase in the lowest temperature experienced by organisms like ticks causes biological activity to double or triple. So now you've got twice as many ticks going around biting twice as many times on the poor, unwitting, unwilling populace and spreading things like Lyme disease and dengue and malaria and, you know, a thousand other diseases, some of which we don't even know about yet. Anthrax from melting mammals in Siberia. I mean, the list goes on, and you're right, none of it's good news. Occasionally I think about stopping doing this because it's not a lot of fun. You know, I, I don't enjoy any benefit from reminding people about their near-term demise. But I also feel a sense of obligation because I feel like the medical doctor who knows that the patient is going to die, but nobody's telling the patient because they want to maintain hope for the family or whatever sort of nonsense passes for an excuse this, these days for not telling the full truth. Yeah, I think I read one of your articles or, or something, maybe an interview, you talked about hope and saying that hope is kind of uh, a distraction. You know, basically, if you give people hope, then they don't act. You know, if they, they're hopeful for the future, they're going to just be complacent and they're going to, you know, sit there and do the status quo. And I think that, you know, there's some truth to that. that uh, you, know, you can't just yeah. uh, be Pollyanna yeah. about some things, but yeah. The peer-reviewed evidence indicates as much that, you know, think about World War II. If the American populace had just assumed that somebody was going to fix it, that the Manhattan Project was going to work out fine, we don't have to do a thing, then no sacrifices would have been made. Then people would not have been growing their own food in their own yards. It's all going to be fine. That sort of Pollyanna hopeful approach has its negative consequences. Instead, the, and you know, I'm not interested at all in promulgating fear, but fear is a far more a far greater motivator than hope is. You know, you want to strike, you want to get somebody to act, point a gun at them. Don't tell them you love them. <laughs> yeah, I had the experience. I didn't like tamales and uh, it was down in uh, Southern Texas and this uh, inebriated guy from Mexico wanted me to try his mom's tamales and he actually pointed a gun at my head and said, eat them. <laughs> And those tamales, I, I actually enjoyed. <laughs> I enjoyed those, but, dying, right? Right, exactly. That was a funny little story I had from years and years ago when I was a stupid college kid doing. So you've stuff. actually written tamales you could die for. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Good. <laughs> yeah, that's Let me ask you. I mean, because obviously you and, and myself, I've taken a sort of a a, a a controversial stance on nutrition, and I get a lot of haters from that. Tell me about the. I'm sure you get a lot of detractors and probably some of it's not nice. Uh, what have you dealt with over the years since you've been public about this? Well, a lot of betrayal. You know, a lot of people who I thought were my friends turned out to be not so friendly in their actions. And that's the, that's the part that hurts, really. You know, we can all take the hate mail when it's coming from somebody we never met. 
we can all take the death threats and they get a lot of those because nobody's going to deliver on that. First of all, all those death threats come from an anonymous source. You're too shit, chicken shit to give your own name and you're going to come into my house and kill me. Here's my address. I used to give my, I used to give those people my address all the time. And then I started living with a woman and then another woman and they didn't appreciate that sort of behavior. <laughs> so I don't give people the address anymore. Uh, so mostly it's the betrayal that is annoying. Uh, on the one hand, there's, there's a lot of scientists, especially climate scientists who are coming around to my way of thinking now. And sometimes I'm annoyed because it's intellectual property and it's the only thing I have really besides my integrity is my intellectual property and, and other people are taking that away from me and claiming it as their own. But then I realize that they are doing the world a service by even coming close to my message, by even telling people that we only have until 2030, like the IPCC says, is encouraging people to live with urgency. So that's awesome. You know, when I was completely driven by ego as a faculty member on campus, that would have driven me crazy. And I would have been chasing after those people legally. Now, whatever. If we get to the point that even 10 or 20% of the scientific community is promulgating the notion that humans don't have long on the planet, then I will view that as very good news. Yeah, so, I mean, I, like I so said, the I good th news and the bad news, you know, it's a mixed bag. Have, have I had some shitty experiences? Yeah, there was quite a time there when I didn't care if I lived or I died. And so it made it really easy to promulgate this message. <laughs> but, but now I really want to live and I have adopted an attitude based on the seven threes that even three days can be a long time properly lived. And so I try to focus on the here and now. I try to live with gratitude and with respect and appreciation for other people and for the living planet. And it helps. I won't say it helps at all, but it helps. Well, this has been a wonderful discussion, uh, Professor McPherson. Um, I, I'm going to tentatively propose that we do another one of these in 2027. And hopefully you're wrong. <laughs> yes, please. And if we don't make it, then, you know, say la vie, I guess. But uh, hopefully we can all sort of at least, you know, appreciate the time that we do have, however long that may be. Zach, any last, any last minute sort of things you want to address? And then if not, can you let people know where to find you, where, where you find more about what your, uh, your talks are about uh, and that sort sure. of stuff? Sure. So first of all, I have a phone that allows me to plan many years in advance. So I'm going to put 10 a.m. Eastern time on January 16th in 2027 as our next <laughs> conversation. So I look forward to that. You can find all my work at guymcpherson.com. And there's, there's a list of recent videos and recent publications and blah, 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 everything. So I posted there this morning. I've initiated a new video series with my partner here in Orange County, Florida, that is designed specifically for entertainment and to get some things off my chest. So I get a lot of hate mail. You guys might want to think about this. You get a lot of hate mail. I print, I print out a batch, and then a few days later, I'll, I'll read one or two of them, and I'll respond on camera. 
And it's funny as hell. And I don't ever give away these people's names, but it's funny the things people say about me. And so I just like to respond on camera. It's mostly for the entertainment of the people watching, but it, it allows me to get over a little bit of the frustration as well. Yeah, I understand. I get, I get my share hate mail. All right, Zach, <laughs> anything else, Zach? No, I think that was it. Uh, Professor McPherson, thanks so much for giving us some of your time and we'll look forward to, uh, you know, hopefully having you back on in seven years <laughs> at our designated <laughs> time, time and date. Uh, but we will attach your website to the show notes. Folks can go there and check out your stuff and then uh, connect with you and, you know, hopefully not add to the, the hate mail pile. But uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate the opportunity to have a chat. This has been a a wonderful and polite conversation. I don't get a lot of that, so thank you. <laughs> well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers Podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.